This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Hi, it's Dr. Karen here. Dr. Karen Wilson starts with the voice of leadership and Dr. Karen speaks leadership. And today I want to share some information with you about why every organization needs troublemakers. And that may sound counterintuitive. So stay tuned as I share more about this topic. Recently, I was at my annual meeting of the American Psychological Association. And one of my psychologist colleagues, a researcher, her name is Dr. Charlene Nemeth, and she's at UC Berkeley in California and has a PhD from Cornell University and also a bachelor's degree in math and in psychology from Washington University in St. Louis. She was one of the keynote speakers and she talked a lot about concepts she's been researching for years and that now appear in her book called In Defense of Troublemakers. And I thought that what she had to share and what she had to say was relevant for our current business climate. One of the things she talks about is how that if you have troublemakers in the mix, you can make better decisions. You also make better decisions because you have clearer thinking when there's some dissension, when everyone's not on the exact same page of consensus. And very often consensus can obscure some facts and some experiences and some realities. So the part that I found most interesting is she wasn't suggesting that the dissenters idea their way forward was necessarily the way to go. Rather, what she was really saying is that the way that they think and how that seeds the organization provokes the whole organization to think differently. And it's the different thinking that leads to the better decision-making. So it's all about an invitation to think about an issue. And she talked about areas that are impacted or could be affected by different thinking and also the disasters that happen when the different thinking is not brought to the table. So, for example, how we respond to war situations and the decisions we make about war, surgical mistakes in hospitals and in the surgery rooms, jury verdicts, airplane crashes, and in the business sense, the day-to-day business sense, mergers and acquisitions. And she referenced the long time ago failed merger of AOL and Time Warner and how come it was that people could not foresee this merger and how it would unravel within months. So she talked again about the importance of this divergent think, this thinking that has dissent in it and dissension in it. So what I want to summarize first is maybe a a conceptualization of consensus thinking, what happens over on that side, and then a little bit about divergent thinking and what we see there. On the consensus side, 
the mind of people who are participating in the exercise is stimulated to think and to take the consensus perspective or the consensus viewpoint. That is, in many respects, the objective of the consensus. And it corroborates the judgment that's already in the room, that's already on the table. In essence, that consensus process participates in closing or narrowing the mind. And one of the things that Dr. Nemeth referred to is how closely akin this process is to brainwashing and the brainwashing approaches of many organizations, countries, belief systems, and also cults. Basically, on that side of the fence, you're asking people to follow blindly, even if what's being said is untrue. Now, on the opposite side of the fence, when we think about divergent thinking, in this case, we want to read all sides of an issue, not just the one side, the one side we believe in, the one side that we think is right, when we're on the divergent mindset. We really want to make a critical assessment to have the ability to remain independent as we take a look at options and possibilities and to generate new ideas and new solutions to generate more ideas and more solutions. And in many cases, it takes more time to see more. And yet she outlines the advantages of the benefit of the dissent process over strictly just a consensus point of view. And one of the things that I might personally add and say, it's not so much that consensus is a bad thing from my perspective. I think that organizations may jump to it too quickly. And there may be many other phases and steps that they have to go through, which shows the dissenting views and explores the issue from all angles before they even consider consensus. However, sometimes you can go for consensus first without exploring the landscape. I think that's when organizations really get into trouble. She talked about an exercise where you can have a string of letters in front of you, jumbled up all kinds of ways. The letters as you see them don't necessarily make a word. If you're trained to think from left to right, you may see combinations of those letters to create new words from a left to right perspective. Other people might be trained to think about it from right to left. And as they go from right to left, they're going to see even some words that those who were looking left to right didn't see. So what Dr. Nemeth would say is that we want to train our minds to look in multiple directions simultaneously. So you're not just combining from the left to right or from the right to left. You're looking at all of those letters and thinking about the unique ways they can be combined and mixed up. Don't matter whether you're coming from left to right pulling things out of the middle or whatever. So it is multi-directional in that sense. This, this reminds me of a practice that my father had for many, many years. He would get the newspaper every day and he would go to what was called the jumble in the newspaper and it would be all of these letters and sometimes it'd be grouped in different uh, strings because it might create a phrase. And you had to figure out what was the phrase that these letters created, and sometimes it was a word, that went with a theme where they give you a hint. 
And it wasn't really an easy exercise to do. And he did it every day as a way of stimulating his mind and thinking differently. And sometimes if I happened to be home and if he got stuck on one of them, he would ask me to look at it. And that was good because you're bringing in fresh eyes, a new perspective. And sometimes I could see what he couldn't see. And together we would solve the puzzle or the jumble or the riddle for the day. So all of these things train our minds to think in different ways and to look from multiple angles so that we come up with better answers and better solutions. Psychologists have a number of pictures that you probably have seen in your introductory psychology classes if you've taken them. And these pictures, when you see them, some people will look at this one picture and what they'll see is a young woman in profile. Others will look at the same picture and they'll see an old woman and generally the face is a little bit more forward facing. Now, you can train your mind so that you can see the young woman and you can also see the older woman. And it's kind of fun to do, to have your eyes bounce back and forth between both images. And yet in the world, there are people who can only see one or the other. They see only the young woman or they see only the old woman. Or some people fleetingly will be able to see the one that they couldn't see at first, but they can't get back to it. So the more we're exercising our brains and minds and training our brains and minds to see different aspects, the more likely it is that we're also training our minds I believe, for this dissenting, divergent kind of thinking that Dr. Nemeth talks, talks about. So it's all around us in various different ways. I know even my husband and I, we have fun because he, he is a great photographer and he takes pictures of sunsets and sunrises and often there are beautiful cloud formations in the mix. And he also takes pictures at the Garden of the Gods, which is a beautiful city park with lots of red rock formations. And so when we look at those photographs and look at those pictures and the clouds and the red rocks, and we have a game that we'll play and I'll say, well, I see this in the clouds or I see this animal shape in the rocks. None of that is technically built in, but we try to see how many different things we can see in the cloud formations and in the rock formations. And again, it's a way of training your mind not to just go with the first thing you see, and not to just fasten in on one thing, rather to see multiple views and multiple angles. One of the things I wonder, and Dr. Nemeth didn't talk about this, but it's something that I think about. I think back to the pandemic, and I wonder if our solutions to the pandemic may have been vulnerable to this consensus, more convergent thinking, than to a divergent thinking process. At the very beginning of the pandemic, there were many scientists, award-winning scientists, and many physicians with lots of clinical experience working with patients with all different conditions, working with people with different viral infections and so on and so forth. And at the very beginning of this pandemic period, those scientists and those medical professionals did what they're supposed to do, which is think of alternatives that could solve the issue at hand. So many looked at drugs that were already in existence 
and they thought about how could we repurpose these for the purpose of this new virus that's on the loose. And many got excellent results in their communities. They saved so many lives using these alternative pharmaceuticals that were already known to be safe. They've been in the marketplace for many years, had all kinds of clinical trials and studies, and had been useful in treating other conditions. Now, on the other side of the fence, there were a group of people, there was a group of people who are highly dedicated to the notion of this one solution of the mRNA vaccines and so-called vaccines, actually. And so they wanted to do that solution and blocked out other information, including disconfirming information or information to say that maybe their solution wasn't as safe as they said it was or thought it was, or maybe wasn't even as effective as they thought it would be. And yet those who came up with alternative perspectives were silenced and made to feel as though they didn't know what they were talking about. And so the public gets fed then one side of the picture and not necessarily the divergent points of view. It's my contention that if more of those divergent points of view had been allowed into the dialogue and conversation at the public level, we would have had multiple remedies and solutions to the virus, which is good because you have all different kinds of people and not everyone responds favorably to the one solution. We're all different. And to have options and multiple solutions, we probably would have saved more lives is what I would hold and what I would contend about that process. We also find that we could have looked across the aisle a little bit to see what was happening in other countries, including third world kind of countries, let's say some poor countries in Africa who did not have access to the vaccines in a great way and in the same way. And they just repurposed what they already had. Many went to more preventive strategies and focus on wellness. What we would say, the strategies like taking the vitamin D, the zinc, and all of those kinds of things to help the healthy people to stay healthy and those who are ill to get well faster. So again, just looking to see, well, what else are others doing? And they had low virus rates and low death rates as a result of what they tried in some other places. Similarly, there was a hospital protocol. If you went to the hospital, particularly in the United States and some other Western countries, there was a protocol to be followed, which included ventilators. That worked for some people and not so well for others. And yet there was rigidity in whether to consider other possibilities and alternatives besides the ventilators or even some medications, which for some people ended up being lethal. So I think that when we look back at the pandemic as an example, it's not the only example, we can see the fallacy of consensus thinking and we can see the benefit of the early on dissenting point of views, the divergent thinking point of views, which then just produces more options and alternatives that we can use in any given situation. So I invite you to think about that as we continue to have this conversation. Dr. Nemeth gave an example of a failed scenario because of failing to pay attention to divergent thinking. And this was a plane crash that happened in 1978. It was United Airlines Flight 173 from JFK to Portland with a stop in Denver. 
And as they were coming to the place of stopping, something was going on with the landing gear that was problematic. And so they they put the plane in a holding pattern and they were circling around the airport and they were trying to figure out what's wrong with the landing gear. And they were very focused, if you will, on this landing gear issue. All the while, there were individuals on the plane, part of the crew, who were also looking at the fuel supply. And we know that you're not going to be able to fly or land effectively without the proper amount of fuel. So when they listened to the recordings after the fact, they found out in one case, one of the crew members had said, we've got three pounds of fuel right now. And the captain of the plane is reported as saying, make that four pounds. How do you make it four pounds when it's only three pounds and you're flying in the air and they knew how much fuel was needed to land and they knew how much time they had remaining in order to land given what the fuel updates were. And as she describes it, the fuel updates were made in a rather matter of fact way. And because they were focused instead on landing gear and other issues, they ignored the fuel report. And then six miles from the airport, this airplane crashed. Even though 20 minutes before the time of landing, they had the information they needed to know that the plane was in danger and didn't have enough fuel to land unless they made a decision quickly to go in for landing. You just, you know, never know what's going on or what's happening in these situations, but we can see that some divergent thinking might have been helpful in that case, not have everyone focused on the one part of the problem when that problem had multiple multivariate components and fuel was an important part of the scenario as well. When you take a look at Dr. Nemeth's book, and see the front cover, you will see a school of blue fish. And the blue fish, they're all the same color and they're all swimming in the same direction. And this is her book, In Defense of Troublemakers. And then you will see this one red fish that's actually swimming in the opposite direction of the school of fish. And what she would say is that we really do need that red fish even in the midst of the school of bluefish. And absent that redfish, we're going to miss some important data and important information that we need to make the highest quality decisions. I keep thinking of Representative John Lewis, the late Representative John Lewis, who talked about getting into good trouble. Not all trouble is bad. It may have some bad consequences and repercussions. And he certainly went through some situations and standing for what was right and risking his life. And he suffered injuries with some of the civil rights marches and so on that he participated in. And yet being in the government, he was able to make decisions that made a difference and led in a different direction. And likewise, many people refer to Dr. Martin Luther King as a troublemaker. However, if he did not bring up these alternate perspectives, if he did not even imagine that one could dare to dream a dream of a society where diverse people were walking together for mutual benefit, although many were opposed to that at the time that he spoke it, just him speaking it 
has changed the thinking of our world and we're farther ahead in many respects on diversity-related issues than we would be without that divergent dissenting viewpoint and voice as an example. So I ask the question, why is it that we then resist the redfish if the redfish can be so valuable, as Dr. Nemeth would say? So in my view, here are some reasons why we reject the redfish. We resist the redfish because it slows us down from what we really want to do. And sometimes what we want to do is not necessarily what is best. For example, to narrow it down to only one solution as the treatment for a deadly virus or a difficult virus during a pandemic. Well, maybe that was not the best approach to say we're only going to have one solution. It's what certain people in power wanted to do and that's what they pursued. Similarly, I mentioned in another podcast something about the Ocean Gate submersible that was going down to the wreck site of the Titanic. And over the year or two before the last voyage that this submersible made, there had been all kinds of warnings that maybe it wasn't a good idea to keep operating in the way that they were operating. Frequently, this submersible had lost contact with the surface on previous dives. There were some question marks about whether the glass that they were using for the porthole window was really sufficient for the depths to which the submersible was going. And issue after issue after issue, so many. So that if you had been there in some of those prior scenarios and had seen the things that were problematic and then heard the news about the implosion of that vessel, it wouldn't be surprising to you knowing what was ignored and what was not attended to along the way. So sometimes we're so focused on what we want to do that we don't heed the warnings. Same thing applies to the Titanic as well, not heeding certain warnings as well about the icebergs in the water. So sometimes we block out the warnings. We block out the divergent point of view. We don't listen to it because we're convinced that our own concept is correct. We're convinced that it's foolproof. And then so number two, if we're convinced that we're correct and that the dissenting point of view is not relevant and what we're doing is foolproof, then we'll see the redfish as an irritant rather than as a valued part of the ecosystem. So we see that redfish as an irritant, as a blockade to forward progression. So often, number three, when we think that we know something and we think that no one else can know it any better than we do, and when we're in this mode, especially in these times, we're focused on a lot more of speed to get to where we want to go rather than thinking about this time period of speed of business and and also complexity and how important it may be first to slow down before we can go fast, as we've heard uh, many times before in other situations and scenarios. So yes, there are definitely some leadership implications 
for failing to think in a more divergent way. And I'd like to quote some things that Dr. Nemeth says. She didn't say these at the conference, but in other settings, she's made these comments. And I think they're relevant. She said things such as loyalty does not require conformity. It's an important one. Loyalty does not require conformity. In fact, I would say if you're really loyal to your organization, the mission of your organization and its success, then you might resist some conformity because the divergent side may shed some light on issues that would save the company from disaster. So that's really important. So loyalty doesn't require conformity. She also says if consensus is wrong, then you have an obligation to disagree. So there you are and you see that the fuel is running out. This plane is destined to crash. You must speak up. You have an obligation to break into the consensus mentality, which is driving the airplane into a crash and to stop it. Number three, she would say that weak leaders demand deference. Strong leaders welcome dissent, while weak leaders demand deference. What you really want is information, good information, different information, multiple lenses from which to view the situation and scenario that you're in. Dr. Nemeth would say also that we need dissent for the quality of decision-making that's necessary and for the creativity of the solutions. She'd also say we need to pursue an unbiased search for information on all sides of an issue and to consider these multiple alternatives. And one way that I know I practice this and people who know me often don't understand it from a political point of view, I look at what's being said in each direction politically, the extremes on both sides, the midpoint view and so on. I may never personally embrace the decisions on the extreme views on either side of a political debate. However, I have experienced and found how it profoundly altered my own thinking and critical decision-making processes in coming to the viewpoint that I do end up having. So looking at all of those sides actually makes my own decision-making better. I've seen that in the political arena. So I know that what she's saying really does have merit as well. She would also say that authentic dissent is what opens up the mind and stimulates the divergent thinking. And this is more than just a devil's advocate point of view where you're just using that as a practice. These are real people who see real differences and who are able to share them and to talk about what's the benefit one way or the other. She would also say that, again, that the troublemaker, if you will, the redfish, improves decision-making even when the dissenter is wrong. So maybe that person that's way out there on the far left or the far right, maybe the solution they've come up with is not the right solution. And that's okay because how they're thinking in the moment is what we benefit from. Our own thinking gets challenged and gets changed rather than fastening in on the solution that's right in front of us or what we know. This dissenting process causes us to explore more and we usually then change our thinking and come up 
with something better. She would also say that power rests on authenticity and respect. I mean, the power of thinking critically and differently. And it's the power of the divergent thinking. You need people who are going to be authentic, who are going to be respectful and willing to speak up and share their truth, even if it's not popular. So I have a few questions I want you to just consider and think about this week in your business and in your organization, this whole issue about the red fish and how you treat the red fish and how welcoming your culture is to the dissenting point of view. So number one, I want you to think of a time or maybe times when you made the wrong decision in the business because you didn't fully explore why your preferred plan wouldn't work. Now, of course, you think it's going to work. However, you need to spend some time exploring, well, why wouldn't it work? What could get in the way? I know when I'm working with my clients and we're thinking about scenario planning, it's one of the questions we have to spend time on and we have to camp out there for a while. What could cause this to mess up? Why wouldn't this work out well? If you haven't done that, you have not done a full exploration. So I want you to think of times when you've made the wrong decision and were there redfish views in the room? Were there dissenting perspectives that were ignored? Why were they ignored? Were they ignored because you didn't like the solution they came up with and therefore rejected the thinking process that the whole group could have engaged in to get beyond their solution to, to someplace else? Is it that you moved quickly to consensus and didn't explore the options and the alternatives and so they didn't come up and you didn't see the freight train that was coming because you weren't looking far enough down the track to see the freight train that was on the way. So ask yourself questions about decisions that didn't go right and see if you got fuel updates along the way and chose to ignore them or if you moved to consensus too quickly and never even got the fuel updates, or maybe there was some other issue at play in terms of why those decisions may not have been successful. Then number two, think of times when there really was a redfish in the organization that helped you to think differently and therefore you got to a better solution and possibly even averted disaster along the way. And as you explore that, outline the benefits that came to the group because of the redfish divergent thinking. And look at it. Did you actually go in the direction, decision-making-wise, of what the redfish was recommending? Or did their thinking process heighten your thinking process and you came up with even a better solution than what they were thinking about? It's worth considering and worth the exploration to look back on past scenarios where that redfish pushed you from what you were thinking about into something that was better. And then thirdly, I invite you to ask about what's on your plate now. What decision on the plate now could use some new and some divergent thinking? And how are you applying these concepts and welcoming the redfish to the current conversations. 
And if you've been focused too much on consensus and not enough on divergent thinking and welcoming the redfish, how could you welcome the redfish even now and bring the redfish in for some better decision-making in your organization? So as we close the segment today, I want to share a Bible verse with you that comes from Proverbs, the 15th chapter and verse 22. And it says, without counsel, plans go awry, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. So keep that in mind. You need a multitude of counselors for times such as these, when the decisions are complex, the decisions are difficult, and the speed of change is so high. So don't rely just on your own thinking and your own vantage point, use the wisdom, the lenses, and the divergent thinking of the redfish all around you. And enjoy your business making better decisions every day. Hi, it's Dr. Karen here. Did you know that you can mine the lessons from your own life and work experiences to inspire your teams and your people. So in my book, Lead Yourself First, The Senior Leader's Guide to Engaging Your People for Greater Performance and Impact, I share snippets of my life experiences from childhood all the way up to adulthood. I also share what I learned from these experiences, how that learning informs how I lead today and I share some examples of how I facilitate my client success with these same principles. So I invite you also to apply the same methodology to your life with reflection questions at the end of each chapter. So when you lead yourself first, you then have a foundation for leading others. In chapter two, which is called Run Your Own Race, I share some stories from my days as an active duty army officer when my approach to running the two miles for the physical training test and also my approach for the 12 mile forced road march had to be different from what other people did. So what I would say is dare to be different. Find your own success formula. Sometimes what works for you is different from what works for others. So remember to run your own race and remember to get your own copy of Lead Yourself First and you'll find resources for how to run your own race. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.